Okay, good morning. Thanks for accommodating the room change based on the uh, bris this morning. We uh, conclude the book of Bracious this Shabbos. It's hard to believe we're already done with one-fifth of the Torah again. And with it, this incredible story that's been unfolding for the second half of the book, the longest-running story in the Torah. Of course, the story of Yosef and his brothers, their father. They've now descended to Egypt. Last week's parsha, we uh, saw the... Um, reconciliation of Yosef and his brothers. We saw the brothers bringing their father down to Mitzrayim, settling in Goshen. We've studied in the past why specifically in Goshen, in a suburb rather than in the in the capital or rather than in the uh, metropolis uh, area. And uh, and we saw the uh, conversation, an unusual and very succinct conversation between Paro and Yaakov. Perhaps we expected more from those two giants. That was all the end of last week's Parsha. And all that's left in Parsha's Vayechi is to close the story, is to finish up, tighten up the loose ends. Yaakov Avinu is going to pass away, give brachas to his children. The uh, burial, the funeral will take place. And we'll see what is left of the relationship of Yosef and their brothers as the curtain closes on the stage of the book of Bereshis this uh, first book which describes the birth of the Jewish family. Well, we've talked about this in the past, but if you follow the development of Chumash, we go through the birth of a family, turning into a young nation, turning into a more sophisticated nation, coming into a land and building a national identity. So here, this first book is really about our birth as a, as a people, a family. We begin as a family, a core nuclear family, and we grow from there. And, and the book of Bereshus, the message really all is, is all about the family, how we get along, jealousy and competitiveness and vying for attention and affection and spoiling one child. Uh, it has to do with power. It has to do with honor. It has to do with um, uh, mothers and fathers. And the book of Bereshus are, are countless lessons on the family unit and how a family gets along because we have to figure out how to be a family before we can become a nation. Because a nation at its core is a family. And if it's a dysfunctional family, it's going to be a dysfunctional nation. So that's really what the book, uh, what the uh, Parsha of Vayechi, it closes up those loose ends and leaves us, though the curtain comes down on the story, the family are all gone, the next chapter begins from a family to a nation, but there are so many questions which are left unanswered, we're going to take a look at some of them together. But as we always do, first a very brief overview of our parsha. Vayichi Yaakov, Yaakov lived in Mitzrayim, Yaakov lived in Egypt for 17 years, and then he died at 147 years old. But before he died, he did something which we are encouraged all to do. And that is, he gave a last will and testament to his children in his lifetime. He gave them what we would call an ethical will, a tzava. He gave an ethical will. He didn't wait until after he was gone for them to read it, but he provided it to them. It's a very funny description because he, he calls his children, of course, first he calls the children of Yosef. After all, it was Ephraim whom he learned with so closely, who ran to tell Yosef that our father is uh, very, very sick. In fact, I just received a phone call two minutes ago from Ida Wax. Chazan Wax, unfortunately, has taken a very bad turn for the worse. So we'll dedicate our learning that he not suffer and that he not be in pain and that everything uh, happens smoothly and for his best. But yeah, Ephraim ran to Yosef to say that our, your, our grandfather, your father, has taken a terrible turn. Yosef brought his sons, and we know the opening story in which Yaakov switches his hands. Ephraim and Menashe gives deference to the younger one as if to say that my treatment of you, Yosef, though you were the youngest, wasn't wrong. Even with all that it's led to, Yaakov does it again. Yaakov once again gives priority. Yaakov once again gives the greater respect and dignity to the younger one. As if he hasn't learned his lesson. Not to play favorites. And not to put the younger one over to the older one. But Yaakov is living with a certain divine um, understanding about really what the future holds and who is the progenitor for the sacred tradition. And so he does so anyway. And then he calls all his sons to give them the blessings. The beginning of Perak Memtesa of chapter 49, page 274. He says, come, gather around, come together. I want to reveal to you what's going to happen at the end of days. He wants to give them a bracha. He wants to give them a bracha. And if you look, the Ibn Ezra describes, the Ibn Ezra says it most powerfully. The Ibn Ezra says it most startlingly. But the Ibn Ezra says, how could you even call this a bracha at all? This is not a bracha. 
says the Ibn Ezra, brachos. It's a mistake to call these blessings. Just because it uses the words at the end, and he blessed them, doesn't mean that the entire content of what he communicated to them was a blessing. Where is the blessing in the conversation he has with the oldest three sons, Reuven, Shimon, and Levi? The text does not recount blessings. The Ibn Ezra goes so far as to say, these aren't blessings. At the end, he also said, put his hands on their head and he said, yeah, and also have a good life. Because treat you well. But the actual communication, which the Torah spends the bulk of our Parsha, so poetically and descriptively, that Yaakov communicates to each son, says the Ibn Ezra, don't call it a blessing. If you look in the text, there's no blessing. Particularly to Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Shimon. But really, there's no blessing. The Abar Benel says that Yaakov delivered these with Nevuah. There was a prophecy in the way that he spoke to his sons here. But I would like to humbly suggest that in fact this was the ultimate blessing a parent could give a child. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says similarly, so I should say I'm humbly suggesting. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says, but I'll take it even stronger. The greatest blessing a parent could give a child is to be transparent, forthright, blunt with the child. Not to sugarcoat, and not to pretend, and not to tell them things that they're not, and not to hold them and an esteem they don't deserve. The greatest blessing a parent can give a child is to say, here are your greatest strengths and assets, here is your greatest potential, and these are your greatest challenges. These are your biggest obstacles and shortcomings. Navigate them, circumvent them, transcend them, and you can achieve greatness. But to sugarcoat them, or to sweep them under the table, under the rug... And to just tell the child, you're wonderful, you're so smart, you're so pretty, you're so handsome, everything's so wonderful, have a great life. Is that a blessing of a parent? The parents who every child gets the trophy and every kid comes in first place and everyone gets the award of academics and everyone gets the everything, that's not a blessing. There's no ambition, there's no aspiration, there's no struggle, there's no working on oneself, there's no growth, there's no realization of potential. That's a curse, it's not a blessing. You know what the blessing is Yaakov gives his children? He tells it to them like it is. Now, I'm not talking about, what was she called, the tiger mom? Remember the tiger mom? You remember the tiger mom? An Asian woman who, who uh, made headlines because she wrote a book about how American parents are so soft and pathetic and their children, are, as a result, are also, and really we have to be tough with our kids. She says, if your kid is plump or heavy, tell them, keep eating like this and you're going to be fat. Don't, no, you're beautiful the way you look. Everyone's beautiful. Everyone looks different. Again, I'm not making a statement. Eating disorders are a real issue. It has to be dealt with with sensitivity. Please don't misunderstand my example. But her argument, which again is to the extreme, is that you do a disservice to your child when you ignore or pretend that the deficiencies and faults are not there. If there are issues there, they have to be addressed. And then the child is better off for it. In work, constructive criticism from a place of love, after there is a bank account filled with deposits of affection, is the greatest thing you can do for the person who works for you. But to never give feedback when they're failing time after time or have shortcomings that if improved can make them great is actually a disservice. So what Yaakov does, he kapsu v'shimu, he gathers them, v'shimu el Yisrael avichem, listen to your father, and the Abarbanel says through Nevuah, he tells each of them, here's where you went wrong and here's where you need to improve. Here's your potential for greatness. Here's how you can realize to be an extraordinary and outstanding individual and progenitor of a next generation. It's the greatest blessing. So we're not going to read this section, but go through it over, over Shabbos. Go through the Parsha and understand the way he addresses each of his children is very real, is very blunt, is very forthright. And it's to their advantage. It's for their, in their interests so that they can grow. So unlike the Ibn Ezra who says, what blessing? there's no bracha given here. Brachas are, parnasa gezunt and nachas. Those are brachas, chasidah brachas. Says the Ibn Ezra, there's no brachas here. It says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and others, no, there are brachas. When you tell the person, you're wonderful, here's your potential, but here's your shortcoming. And if you can overcome it, then you can be great. That's the greatest bracha that can be given.
Oh. Yeah, that's a good question. We're not going to spend time on it. I'm unfortunate to deal with it. But the Acharis Ayamim. Yaakov wanted to reveal when Mashiach was going to come. Yaakov wanted to reveal what's going to happen at the end of days. What's going to happen in the Messianic era, in the eschatological era. And he was denied doing so. And that's we have this exchange of Shema, Baruch Shem, and so on. But it's, it's, it's a good question. The Gemara elaborates on it for another time. Continuing, after he goes through and gives these brachas, so-called brachas, quasi-brachas, to his children. He then gives them a final request, page 282, already up to Shishi. Because this, these blessings are the bulk of the Parsha. And he tells them, Twelve tribes. This is how he spoke to them and he blessed them. That's again, the Ibn Ezra says, he blessed them means after he spoke to them harshly, after he gave them rebuke. He threw in a token blessing. We say, no, the rebuke is the greatest blessing. Those are the magic words. He blessed each according to his appropriate blessing. Yaakov doesn't put his sons around one table and say, may each of you and learn and become Gedolei Ador and be in a Kailal. He doesn't put them around a table and say, may each of you be the biggest Balei Tzedakah in your community, the biggest Balei Chesed. May you all uniformly accomplish the same goals or emerge in the same status. He, each one says, this is your strength. You have the capacity, Yisachar Zvulun, the Yisachar Zvulun relationship, it's from this Parsha, that we already have a precedent from our Parsha, the Gemara talks about the idea that one learns, the other supports the learning, the one who contributes financially to support the learning reaps part of the merit of the spiritual benefit of the learning. The Yisachar Zvulun partnership. Well, you can only create that partnership if you recognize that one is better positioned to learn and the other is better positioned to succeed financially and support that learning. If you tell them both, you both need to sit and learn, both are going to starve and one is not cut out for learning. So the Pasuk itself describes The greatest bracha you could give is not a generic bracha. The greatest bracha to give is a tapered, individualized, specific bracha. To educate each child according to their way. To know what each kid is good at. It's the hardest thing as a parent. God has blessed me. I have seven children. It's a big family. Trust me, it's a big family. So it's a much easier, it's a much easier way to parent to just have blanket rules. Everyone has to go to sleep at the same time. Everybody gets this for Hanukkah. Everybody has to have this chore. Everybody has to have these rules when you can leave that. Everybody has, but that's not fair or real. Each one has different strengths and proclivities and skills and talents. Everyone gets only piano lessons. Everyone only can play the guitar. Everyone... You have to find, this one's a better at gymnastics, this one's better in an instrument, this one's better at, uh, at uh, art, and this one doesn't want to do any of the above, and it's okay. And this one, only then, and that's what Yaakov teaches us in this Parsha, I feel this very strongly, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm describing it so at length, but I think this is, our pre- this is the end of the Book of Bracious. What happens when you tried to put Yitzchak and Yishmael in the same box? Para Adam. What happened when you tried to put Yaakov and Esav in the same box? You got Esav. And what's the culmination of Sefer Bracious? The lesson is learned. What does Yaakov do when he turns to his sons? Kebir asher Each one is different. Each one is different. And so Yaakov had children and grandchildren, Kenai Nahara, unlike Avram, unlike Yitzchak. Yaakov, his Enoch were all Shomri Torah Umitzvahs. We're all on the derech. Why? I think not in small measure because each one was able to discover who they were. They weren't forced to be something they weren't because they had a father who was blunt with them and said, keep it up and you're going to be homeless. Keep it up and you're not going to make a good husband. Keep it up, your children are going to be a failure. This is what you need to do to succeed and that was the greatest bracha. That's the birchaso asher berach osam. He then has one final... Rashi seems to imply, unless I'm misreading, that he included all of them in, a, in, a, you know, in each bracha, but wasn't particular to each, but at the end... Where, which Rashi? Rashi? Be'lach Hasam. No? Where, which, which parts of Gwari? Be'lach Hasam. Lahoyi b'lohoma e'lohi she'ashat. Chav Ches? Yeah, Chav Ches. 
Yeah, what he meant is, of course the brachos he gave individually, he wishes on everyone. He, of course he wishes it on everyone. He hopes that the one who sits and learns also can succeed in business. Right. He hopes the one who's successful in business is still going to find time to learn. So he wants all of the themes to apply to each of them, but nevertheless, he presented them to, to each individually. His final request... Correct. Maybe that was a mistake. You're right. Is that the method? Maybe then they could take it more. We're much more fragile. We need to first tell, you're wonderful, you're great, I love you. Now I have a small piece of feedback if it's okay, a little something. You know, I don't really mean it. Don't take it too harshly. But you're right. First he tells them, he doesn't do it for all of his sons. Maybe the sons who he knows can take it, he gives it to them. The ones who he thinks can't, he doesn't. He doesn't apply it all equally. Yes, Alan. Yeah, it's interesting. Did the sons each approach individually and sit on their father's lap? Were they all in the room while he told this one, this is your mistake problem, you got to work it? It's a good question, I don't know. And what about the appropriateness or the humiliation of not having a private audience, a private moment? Yeah, good question. I suspect that we are, in 2013, a lot more sensitive and a lot more... Gen- we're very fragile, we're very vulnerable. We live in a different time. Then they could... Maybe take it a little bit more. Maybe they were wrong to give it so harshly then. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't know whether this was collectively in one room or individually he called them into the room one by one. I, uh, I don't remember if any of them before should mention anything about it. But yeah, I want to finish the overview because I want to get to our psukim. So Yaakov gives one final request and it is, he wants to be buried in Mara Samach Pela, which is interesting. He identifies it in the field of Ephron Achiti. If my grandfather purchased a plot, I would say in my grandfather's. Now he does. He says, El Avosai. But when he's identifying where it is, he still does so with the field of Ephron Hachiti. And that's where he says, Avram is buried in Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka. There it's where I buried Leah. And that's where I want to go as well. And with that, he dies. And this is the next section is what we're going to study at length. How they cry and they mourn and they embalm. And this is a lot. If you think that Nelson Mandela's funeral happened a long time after his passing it's nothing compared to how long it took Yaakov's uh, funeral and mourning Yosef and his brothers return they descend back to Egypt have a fascinating conversation which we'll see more in a moment and that's the end of the Parsha as the curtain comes down on the story of a family and only continues with the story of our nation I want to begin Perak Nun chapter 50 verse 1 these are the verses that we're going to go through together. Chapter 50, verse 1. Yaakov passes away. Right? Go back one pasuk. Go back to Lam and Gimel. Yaakov finished giving a tzava. Remember, a lot of parents, I mean, that's what I started to tell you earlier. We all, I hope, have financial planning. I hope that anyone responsible who has... Assets has a uh, plan, has a last will and testament, has a, has a, a will dictating where it will go. And it's thought out carefully. Hopefully it includes Boca Raton Synagogue in some small measure, if you've appreciated and enjoyed living in our community. But we all have a legacy. How will we divide it among our children, among charities that we cared about? How will we make sure that we continue to contribute to those things that we held dear in our lives? Most people plan that. What most people fail to leave as well with it is an ethical will. A letter to one's children and grandchildren, here's how I led my life, these are my values, these are the lessons I've learned, this is what is important, I hope you will cherish it also. Sometimes you can do the two in combination. That one only has access to the money if they embrace certain values. You know, I know somebody who told me he left a... He's not particularly observant, and his grandchildren, children, and grandchildren certainly are not. So he said the grandchildren only get access to trust if they go on March of the Living, if they do certain things. So sometimes you can mix the two. You can integrate the ethical will in the actual will as a way of encouraging the kind of educational experiences that one wants from their children and grandchildren. But what Yaakov does here is leave an ethical will. Our great rabbis, nobody's published it yet. It would make a wonderful book. 
a collection of the ethical wills of our great rabbis in history. Is there a book? Oh, it's called, oh yeah? Hebrew ethical wills. Darn it. I'm always too late with my book ideas. One step behind. Is it good? Oh, what a shame. Anyway, so, so uh, yeah. So Yaakov teaches us the precedent of le- something to start thinking about. It's something to start thinking about. We can actually do it in an even more natural way. You turn, on the, uh, you turn on your cell phone, point it in your direction, and you make a video. And the video lives in perpetuity to children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And you talk about your life and your values and what was important and what you cared about and your hopes and dreams and aspirations for them. And if they're children today, they'll just discard it and not care and live the life the way they want. But anyway, it's worth living any, it's worth leaving anyway. Okay, so let's go through these psukim. So Yaakov left his tzava, he died, he completed his tzava, he gathered his legs into the bed, and he was gathered uh, to his people, which is another way of saying that he expired, that he died. Rashi notes, what word one would expect is missing? It never mentions death, and our rabbis in Masechistanis teach us that's because Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yaakov never died. Rav Hutner has a wonderful piece on this. What does it mean, Yaakov Avinu Lomes? And it's not specific to Yaakov, but why do we call it Yaakov? It means that the righteous, even in their death, are called alive. The wicked, even while they're alive, are called dead. It means that life and death are relative. They're not identified or, or confirmed by the presence of a pulse. They're confirmed by the presence of values and contributions. Yaakov continues to live because Yisrael. Yisrael is Yaakov. And look around at the Jewish people. Look around at Batei Midrashim. And Batei Midrashos and shuls. Look around at schools. Look around at the communities and mikvos and Erev and Kashras. And you tell me, is Yaakov Avinu alive or dead? Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yisrael, his impact, his, his uh, legacy clearly is very, very much still alive. So we have this idea that the righteous are alive even after they expire. And the wicked are dead even while they're alive because their life is not one that is meaningful. Is not one that contributes. <coughs> We studied this at Shabbat Shuvah, when we talked about how in rabbinic literature we don't see the concept of death, we see Yitzhiyas HaNeshama. Then the soul is extracted from the body. But the soul is immortal. The soul lives forever, is eternal. It returns to its eternal source, the Almighty Himself. So there is no death. The notion of death that we have is simply the expiration of the body. The soul is extracted from the body. We bury bodies. We don't bury people. Bodies die. People don't die. The neshama continues, and the neshama endures, and the neshama lives. The body gives up after a certain amount of years. And the body is what we bury, and the body dies. But people live. And therefore the verse does not describe that Yaakov died, because people don't die. Neshamas don't die. Yaakov lives even after his body failed. Yosef collapses on his father, and he cries, and he kisses he, uh, he embraces his father. Orachayim HaKadosh, subject of our people of the book tonight. If you've not yet signed up for people of the book, it's not too late. You've only missed the first two classes. It's an outstanding program. Addresses different, uh, different uh, rabbinic personalities. Tonight we're studying the Orachayim HaKadosh, the 18th century Moroccan rabbi. who's fascinating. The Baal Shem Tov and Hasidim describe his commentary as great as the early ones, Rashi himself. We'll talk about the Orachayim's life, where he lived, how he moved. If you haven't signed up, you can still come, people of the book tonight. So the Orachayim HaKadosh is bothered. Vayishaklo? That doesn't sound very Jewish. We kiss a corpse? Once a person dies, hands off. The Hevra Kadisha, of course, does the Tahara with love, care, concern, affection. But we no longer embrace. So says the Orachayim HaKadosh. Yes, Yosef did to his father Yaakov, but it's not appropriate in other circumstances. Because the corpse is the embodiment of impurity, of Tumma. Why? Tumma doesn't mean dirtiness. Tumma has some negative connotation, 
but Tumma, one always finds the concept of Tumma of Tahara, purity and impurity in Judaism, as a function of potential and unrealized potential. Being Tahor, purity means the capacity for greatness, the potential for more. Impurity is when that potential is unrealized. A woman who menstruates is impure because conception didn't take place. A man who... Uh, a man who... Um, ejaculates without it leading to conception, there's an impurity because there's an unrealized potential. The ultimate unrealized potential of the is a mace because a mace, a lifeless body, is no longer capable of making decisions, of impacting the world. They've ceased to be able to exhibit free will. So that's the source of Tumah. It says the Rechaim HaKadosh, Tumasu Bokas Va'ola Adarakiyah. And it would contaminate the one who kisses that body. That's why we know that contact with a corpse leaves somebody tame. A Kohen is not allowed to be in contact or even in the same room, under the same roof as a corpse. Yaakov Avinu is the exception. Because we have this tradition that Yaakov Avinu lomes, Yosef kissed him because he was more like taking a nap. Yashan v'nir dem. Yaakov was chapen a shluf. It's been a long shluf. But he's still alive. And because we have the tradition he's alive, that's why it's appropriate here that it was okay that Yosef kissed him. Vayitzav Yosef is avadav esarofim lachanot esaviv. Yosef then instructs the servants, the doctors, to embalm his father. Vayachantu arofim es Yisrael. And they in fact do so. Again, we don't have time today. It's really worthwhile to examine this interchange, when is he referred to as Yaakov, when Yisrael, why different times. It takes 40 days for the embalming to be complete. And the Egyptians cry for the loss of Yaakov for 70 days. Nobody's raising a hand and yelling, but you should. Do Jews, do we believe in embalming? What's going on here? We don't embalm. We discourage. Embalming is done before one is put into a mausoleum. And the embalming is the injection of chemicals within the body through the veins that prevent decay. So the body is maintained complete and it's put in the file cabinet of the mausoleum above ground. And this is not the Jewish tradition. This is not the Jewish tradition. We believe we return the earth to which we came. The body decomposes. And in fact, so much so, again, we talked about the Shabbat Shuv as well, the soul can only truly ascend and continue to recognize its identity independent of the body once the body has begun to disintegrate. It's when the body is placed in the ground and the soul recognizes that, yes, it may have been the vehicle that housed me for these 70, 80, 120 years, but that's not me. But so long as the body is preserved and put in a shelf, the soul continues to feel a connection, a bond, and is unable to move on. And that creates a discomfort, a tension, a pain for the soul. We don't believe in mausoleums. We don't believe in the embalming process. We don't consider that to be the covet mace. So what in the world's going on here that Yosef instructs the Egyptian doctors to embalm his father? And 40 days they spend. How could it be? Yes? They could be buried that way as well, right? So your body is going into the earth. Now, if Yaakov had, uh, was embalmed, why have we changed it uh, since that time? Well, exactly. Well, or I would say differently. Since the bombing is wrong, why did Yosef instruct Yaakov to do it? Mm-hmm. Even if going in the ground, still they're going to be preserved. And, and the preservation is not consistent with the Jewish view of a body returning to the earth from which it came. So the Orachayim HaKadosh, it's going to be a big Orachayim day because I'm teaching the Orachayim tonight. So the Orachayim HaKadosh, is bothered by this question. And he says, Yosef Yosef did so to honor his father. Because in Egypt at the time, this was the way that royalty was treated. And certainly, someone who was considered to be a great dignitary, Nelson Mandela, I'm sure was given, I don't know if he was embalmed, but he was given uh, the greatest treatment that they have. And this was considered the greatest treatment. Okay, so that's the first explanation he has, which doesn't satisfy our question. Well, that's nice that that's what they did. It's not what we do. So why did Yosef do it? But his second answer does. 
Kupela ben Charm Zumahim, the Sova of the Bilta Yaleo La Arts Kuraso, the Mla Yutamim and his Karim, Hadavar Pashid Kibulochanita Loya Masriach, Utsayolamami, Maisa Rebelazar Barash, Bishiman Baryachai, Kamar Bashas. Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yaakov Avinu was such a special person, unique, that his body was not destined to disintegrate. So therefore, his body would live in perpetuity. And what would happen when the Egyptians would witness that Yaakov Avinu was not decaying? They would turn him into a god. They would worship him. They would see some miracle and begin to worship him. Yosef calculated that that would likely happen. That would be tremendously undignified that Yaakov Avinu's body would be a source of idolatry. Therefore, because it was extenuating circumstances, he embalmed his father who would have been preserved anyway so that the Egyptians would assume that the preservation was a result of the embalming, not the result of Yaakov Avinu's special merits. So the Rechaim's second answer is that embalming is wrong, and we don't do it. But Yaakov is an exception. Yaakov is unique because Yaakov's body was going to be preserved nonetheless. Okay, that's how he answers. It's actually somewhat shocking that the other Mepharshim don't jump up and down more and say, what, what? what's going on here? We don't do this. I mean, again, the other answer always is that in the Torah, we have a tradition, we just did it in the Dafyomi, that the uh, Avos kept the whole Torah. Even Erevei Tchumen. And Erevei uh, Tavshilin. But if you look at the Torah itself, it never says that they did. So it's possible that they had not yet adopted the Jewish way in death and dying. I mean, that sounds controversial, but before the rabbinic tradition that they kept everything, one can answer simply based on the Pesukim. But the Archaim explains why this one is an exception. Now if you look at the Pesuk we read, it's interesting. I understand why Yaakov's children and grandchildren mourn, cry, feel loss. But who does the Pesuk describe? Vayivku who cries for 70 days? Mitzrayim. Says the Sfarno, Lo bilvad lechvod Yosef uve mitzvaso, aval mitzad Yisrael shahayaroi lusrara. Why is the name Yisrael used here? Vayachantu arofim es Yisrael. So the Svarno is noting. You know why the name Yisrael is used? If the name Yaakov was used, it would mean that he was given this treatment, and the people cried. Why? This is our Heilige Yosef's father, the great Yosef who saved our country, the great Yosef who saved our economy. His father died. We're sad for him. Because the name Yisrael is used, it indicates that the honor and dignity that was shown and the crying that was done was not because of Yosef, but was because of Yaakov proper. They appreciated, they loved, and they felt a sense of loss for Yaakov. Vayivru yimei b'chiyaso, we're on Pasuk Dalet, verse 4. Vayivru yimei b'chiyaso, the days of crying past. Vayidaber Yosef, a base paro lemor. Yosef speaks to the house of paro. Doesn't speak directly. If I find favor in your eyes, please pass on the following message for me. Yeah, now Yosef is the viceroy. Does Yosef have Paro's ear? He should, absolutely, one would think. Nevertheless, he chooses not to speak to him directly. He speaks to him indirectly. So says Svorna, why is that? Because it's not appropriate in a state of mourning to come to see the king. One doesn't go to see the king in a state of, in a state of mourning. There's a story in the book about Rav Moshe Sher, that he was once summoned with a delegation to the White House to meet with the president about a pressing Jewish issue on Tisha B'Av. So he asked the Gedali Ador at the time, I think it was Rav Yaakov, Rav Moshe, should he shave? Should he prepare and present himself? And they answered yes. That he should put on leather shoes and shave Though it was Tisha B'Av, not, not the three weeks, not the nine days. Tisha B'Av proper, because one is going to covered Malchus, one is going to see the king, the White House, one has to look proper. So here, Yaak, uh, Yosef doesn't go to speak to Paro directly. Ein lavo ashara melech bilvush sak. One does not go directly. The, the uh, Orachayim was also bothered by this question. He gives other answers. Pasakei. Avi ishbiyani lemor. And what was the message they were to communicate? Says, Yosef, my father made me swear... I'm dying. Bury me in the place, my homeland, in which I was born. 
So please, says Yosef through messengers to Paro, allow me to honor my oath, honor my, my uh, promise to bury my father in Egypt, Canaan, ve'ashuva, and I will return. And I will return. Vayal Yosef took all day Paro beso because It doesn't say explicitly he was granted the permission, but it's implicit because it says Yosef in fact ascended, went up to bury his. I'm sorry. It does say it explicitly. And then Vayal Yosef Yosef goes up buries his father. They go up with him. Says Rashi Pasuk Kasher like I promised my... Uh, I'm sorry, you can go just as you promised your father. Says Paro back to Yosef, had you not sworn to your father, I wouldn't let you go. Paro says, the only reason I'm letting you go is because a promise was made. Now, if you remember, by the way, you could ask this question. When Yaakov, in fact, made his son make this promise, the Mepharshim wonder, did Yaakov not trust his son? If you go back to... Yeah. If you go back, when Yaakov makes him t- make this promise, Yosef similarly makes his brother's promise, bury me in Israel. Why a pro- Do you not trust? They, they weren't trustworthy? So the Mepharshim explained, no, they anticipated you will be restricted, you won't be allowed to go. The only allowance will be is if you have to fulfill a promise. So Yaakov did Yosef a favor by making him promise. It didn't show a lack of trust. He did him a favor because he created the scenario that would in fact allow... Yosef to go. As Rashi here explains. Look at the Sforno. Yosef went up and so did Avde Paro, Zikne Beso, because Zikne Eretz Mitzrayim. Quite a delegation went. It wasn't just the family who went. Says the Sforno, Vayalu ito biltim mitzvaso. Yosef didn't instruct them on their own. Zikne Beso, because Zikne Eretz Mitzrayim. Lioso nechshav lachacham be'enei chachme ador. Because by now Yaakov had earned a reputation. 17 years he had been living in Egypt, he had earned a reputation. He was wise counsel. He was a sage. He was a virtuous man. And his reputation alone had endeared him to the people such that he had such an elaborate funeral, not only as a way of respecting Yosef, but earned by Yaakov on his own. Well, what does, Yaakov make, what does Yosef rather make sure to tell Paro, please let me go and... Ve'ashuva. Says the Rashbam, Al yid'ag she'ani me'niach legamre. Don't worry that this is a pretense to be able to stay in Kena'an permanently, that I'm going back to the home of my father. I'm just going to bury him. I will be back. Pasachas. V'chobes Yosef ve'echar beis oviv rak tapam v'tsonam v'karam azvu be'eretz Goshen. All the house of Yosef and his brothers rak tapam v'tsonam. Only the children and the cattle remained in Goshen. This delegation was so comprehensive. It included officers of Paro's court. It included the elders of Egypt. It included the cabinet members. And it even included members of the military. What's Rechav and Parashim? Members of the military. Why? Says the Svarno. Because everyone admired Yaakov. The cabinet admired Yaakov for his wisdom. The Chachamim, the scholars, reminded ya- uh, um, admired Yaakov for his scholarship. And the military admired Yaakov as an Ishchayel. After all, perhaps they heard about the showdown with Esav. Perhaps they heard about what he did to get the bracha. How Yaakov lived in the home of Lavan. Yaakov wasn't some, by this point, some passive, pale, meek yeshiva boy, some scholar who couldn't hold his own. Yaakov is an Ishchayel. So he received the honors of a very diverse group, a tremendous delegation from the scholars to the cabinet to the military as well. And as this delegation ascends, goes to Israel 
for the burial. Torah says they came to Goran Hatat, a place which is across from Jordan. They had a great eulogy. What does Chaved mean? A weighty, significant, heavy. This wasn't superficial or, or simple. And they mourned for their father for seven days. Yes. Correct. So they paused there to give the eulogies. This is the origin of our having the service in the funeral home and the burial at the cemetery. Now they they this, they stopped at the funeral home in in uh, Goren Ha'atad, which uh, Rashi explains what that place is, a special place. But they had the service there and the burial continued later. The people of Canaan. Right, who were sustained from Egypt, who knew Yaakov's legacy from when he lived there, now hear about the eulogies. They associated it with Egypt. And his children treated him, who's him, Yaakov, as he had commanded them. They bring him to Canaan, and they inter him in the Cave of Machpelah, Ashakana Avram Esasadeh, lest you forget the cave that belongs to us because it was purchased with our grandfather's money. Yosef and his brothers returned to Egypt, and the entire delegation who had gone, after they had completed the internment. Look at Rashi, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Who carried Yaakov's coffin? The way we treat uh, the way we treat the nifter, even after they die, also is with great honor and respect. Which you might ask, what difference does it make based on what we said earlier? Once the soul is extracted, it's just a lifeless body. It was the vehicle. It's not one's life. One lives through the soul. So why, why do we treat a tahara, the, the affection which is given, the washing, the cleaning under the fingernails, in the ear, the combing of the hair, the dressing. Why do we treat with such love and affection? It's just a body. And the answer is, while the soul is transitioning and still is nostalgic for and remembers and identifies with the body, we comfort the soul through the proper treatment of the body. And the body remains the means through which we can show honor to the soul. And that's why we announce at every funeral, we don't delegate the burial to the cemetery workers. We do it ourselves, because that's the covet that we show. That's the covet ames, the honor. So, therefore, though this is somewhat controversial, I hope no one will be insulted. For example, we try to limit contact with the Jewish body, only Jews, the Hever Kadisha. We try to eliminate in the hospital. We'll tell the nurses, the doc, thank you so much. You were wonderful. We appreciate all your care and concern. Please don't touch the body. Our Hever Kadisha is coming. They will remove the tubes. They will remove the, the, uh, the, the lines, the IVs. And, uh, and we take care of the Tahara. Even within the Hever Kadisha itself, we seek, and I hope no one withdraw from the Hever Kadisha after I say this, but we look for people of merit, of virtue, the more righteous people to perform this this service, this love. There are Hevra Kaddishas that don't allow people who are not Shomer Shabbos to be members of the Hevra. There are Hevras that will only allow people who dress a certain way consistent with Halacha to be members of the Hevra. Forget what our standards are. We're open. We want people to be involved in this mitzvah and to be inspired to growing. But you see that the way that we treat the body is an opportunity to give honor, to give kavod to the soul. So here Yaakov instructed, he did not want his grandchildren carrying his coffin, and he did not want any Egyptians. Lo yisum mitasi lo ish mitri Ela atem, you. The kavod lahem maka. Why didn't he want his grandchildren? Because they are mibnos kena'an. Kena'an is mixed into their lineage. Ela atem, you. The kavod lahem makom. And he told them, this is pretty much this is pretty specific detail in his will. Gimel Mizrach, Dalad Ruchos, three on each side, carrying the coffin. Ukisidran Lamasa Machana Shal Degalam Nikva Ukain. 
And as we'll read in Sefer Shmos, the way that the tribes encamped around the tabernacle, that was the way that they stood around the coffin carrying it. The two who didn't participate were Levi, because Levi was going to carry the Aron, so shouldn't carry this Aron. And Yosef, who was a king, Yosef, who himself was a dignitary, would be below his position of royalty to be participating. Menashe Ephraim Yu since Yaakov had already included Menashe Ephraim Kiruvim Vishimon Yuli, Menashe and Ephraim were like tribes themselves, they took the place of those two. Vizeu Isha Lisa Mitaso. So the image of the tribes of the sons and Menashe and Ephraim surrounding the Aron is the same parallel image the tribes will encamp surrounding the Mishkan and traveling through the desert. Yes, Hensha. How long did it take for that to go from Jerusalem? How long was this journey? I'm not sure. I mean, we know that seven days they mourned in Goran Ha'atad. Were they traveling during those seven days? Did they remain there? I don't know. I don't know. So Menashe and Ephraim are not considered grandchildren. Kiruvu and Vishimon Yiuli, Yaakov had already said, they have a status of being one of his own children. Right, even though... Osnas, we spoke about last week. Maybe that's why. The mother is not a Canaanite. The mother was Osnas, who was the product of Dina and Shechem. At least from Dina, she's not... Although there is Shechem mixed in. Okay. So Pasuk Yedal described Yosef came down to Egypt, he and his brothers. Here it says, who came down? Yosef, he, his brothers, and all those who went with him. When they went up, first it said, the Egyptians, and then the brothers. The reason the Egyptians were listed first is because what a remarkable thing. Right? Right now there's a massive funeral taking place in South Africa. The dignitaries of the world, minus the leadership of Israel, for whatever reason, we don't really know, are, are all there. I know what he said. I know what he said, but we don't really know. But um, the dignitaries of the world, and these, I think they said it's the largest gathering of dignitaries since Churchill's death. This is the, so this is what happened when Yaakov Avinu was buried, Lahavdil. And these dignitaries placed their crowns, Rashi said, Kisreim Ba'arono Shal Yaakov. They placed their crowns on the coffin of Yaakov. Again, a great display of deference, of respect, of reverence. And therefore, they were reciprocated that honor by the Torah mentioning their participating in the delegation even before the brothers. Okay, and now we get to what I really wanted to talk about since we have five minutes left. Pasik Tezvav. <laughs> Okay, the burial's over, the funeral's over, it's the end of a generation, Yaakov has died. What's left? Yosef and the brothers. The brothers realized, Yaakov's dad's gone. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yosef. What if Yosef still hates us. And he's going to pay retribution. He's going to take revenge for all the evil that we did to him. Uh-oh. While dad was alive. Rav Hirsch writes on this. Rav Hirsch writes that you see this often happens in families. It's the responsibility of parents to try to prevent it. But what often happens, children will behave out of respect for the parents or out of respect for the desire to get the inheritance. So they behave in the lifetime of the parents. And when the parents are gone, friction. What should happen is children should come together. They now represent the new generation. They now are the patriarchs of the family. The loss of the parent should create a greater bond and unity. But in many families, unfortunately, why were they all together? Because the parents brought them together for yantif, for reunions, for simcha. And when the parent is gone, says Rafersh, you begin to see splintering and fragmenting and you begin to see a divide. So that's what happens. The brothers say, Dad's gone. Dad was protecting us. Yosef never would have touched us 
in the lifetime of our father, the pain it would have cost him, caused him. But now that dad's gone, uh-oh, it's payday. So what do they do? They come to Yosef and they say, your father commanded before his death, saying, Avicha, your father. And they, Abba told us to tell you, after he's gone, yeah, before dad died, uh, he, he told us to tell you that you should forgive us for anything that happened. Let bygones be bygones. It's all water under, water under the bridge. It's all gone. How does Yosef react? He cries. Why does he cry? Joy? Gladness? Sadness? We'll see. They then go and fall before him. We are before you like servants. Now, this is a continuation of the fulfillment of what? Of the dream. Look how the book of Bracious ends. Yosef, it's a catch-22. On the one hand, the dream is fulfilled. The brothers are, are subservient to him. On the other hand... He doesn't have a real relationship here. How tragic. We'll see in a moment. So Yosef says to them, Don't be afraid. What do I, am I taking the place of God? You think I'm going to exact justice against you? You thought bad for me. But God turned it for good. Look how, how much good came out of it. Don't worry. Remember, there's still a famine going on. I'll still provide for you and nourish you. You're okay. And he comforted them. He spoke to their hearts. They went back to Egypt. Yosef lived 120. Yosef saw his family grow. He said to his brothers, Anochi meis, I'm dying. Elokim pakod yifkod eschem ve'aleh eschem in ha'aretz ha'zos, ela'aretz ha'shenishbal ha'avram li'tzhak li'akov. Bring me out of here. I don't want to be permanently interred in Egypt. Vayishba Yosef is b'nei Yisrael emor. He made them swear. Not the brothers, b'nei Yisrael. Pakod yifkod elokim eschem ve'alisa mesas mosai mizeh. Carry my bones out of here. Vayamas Yosef b'nei ve'asa shanim. He died at a hundred and... Ten... Sorry, 110, I said 20 before. He too was embalmed and placed in a, in a uh, mausoleum in Egypt. In Yosef's case, it was a holding pattern until he would be buried permanently in Israel. Kever Yosef, which is today in Shechem. Unfortunately, you risk your life going to visit. Someone was just stoned this week coming back from Kever Yosef, I believe it was. If you remember... Uh, it was a Rabbi Lieberman, originally from Brooklyn, who was murdered in the Second Intifada when he went to Kever Yosef in Shechem. That even though these are the, the places of our holy ancestors, that uh, they're desecrated. Visiting Kever Rachel today, you have to go into a fortress. Maras and only at certain times. Kever Yosef in Shechem, you risk your life. This is with Jewish sovereignty over Israel. <laughs> this is the, the state of affairs. So if you look at these Pesukim, yes. Uh-huh. The coffin was put into the Nile. Um, maybe I didn't. I didn't see that. Ah, oh, here the Balaturim quotes it. Vayasem ba'aron benilus, which is also a mausoleum. In other words, meaning it's not placed in the earth to to disintegrate. It's just a liquid mausoleum. The Sforno says, look at, look at the Sforno. In the same coffin that the embalming took place, that's where the bones were, and they never buried it in the ground. Because it was unusual, I guess normally after the embalming, they put the bones in something else, a cave underground. Here, they kept it in the same Aron, and that's how it was identified later 
when Moshe himself carried the bones of Yosef out of. You remember, it was the merit of the bones of Yosef that caused the splitting of the sea. That's what the Medrash says. Okay, let's go back. In our, in our few, last few minutes, what I want to examine is this end of this section, this, uh, the relationship that remains between the brothers and Yosef, what's really going on here. Now, why did the brothers fear? So Rashi tells us, and Pasuk Tezvav, Ma'u hikiru b'misaso eitzel Yosef, shayirigin l'nisot ha'shachano Yosef. What happened? They used to eat together as a family regularly in the palace of Yosef. What happened after Yaakov died? They no longer got invited. They were no longer welcome. How did they interpret it? The commentaries give a lot of reasons why Yosef did that. He didn't want to alienate the Egyptians who would have saw him giving favor to his brothers. They understood it while the father was alive. They wouldn't have understood it after his death. Excuse me, the commentators give a lot of explanations of why Yosef did that. But the brothers interpreted it to being Yosef really has animosity towards us. Yosef really harbors ill will against us. That Yosef is going to take revenge against us. Yosef is going to take revenge. So that's one reason. Oh, so that's what we'll see right now. So Rashi says, what precipitated their fear that he was going to take revenge? They were no longer invited. The Balaturim, as Phil correctly points out, the Balaturim Pasik Tezvav says there was something else. When they were on their way back from the funeral, they passed by the infamous pit that the brothers had thrown Yosef in. And Yosef said to his brothers, Hold on a minute. And he made a bracha. The, the Mishnah in Barachos teaches that we're obligated to recite a blessing in a place where a miracle occurred. So Yosef felt a miracle had occurred for him there. He said to the brothers, hold on, let me just say a blessing. How did they interpret it? They were kind of hoping we'd walk right by that pit, that no one would notice that pit. When Yosef stood by that pit, cried, made a blessing, remembered all that had happened, they said to themselves, uh-oh, uh-oh. The um, okay, so so what's happening? What's really happening here? There's a few more mafarshim here to see. It says Vayitzavu al Yosef, pasuk Tazayin. Vayitzavu al Yosef lemor, avicha tziva lefnei Moshe lemor. What do you mean specifically to Yosef? Kama Vayitzavem al bnei Yisrael tziva lemoshe laAron. Avze Vayitzavu al shlucham liyos shaliach al Yosef lomar lekain. Vesmit zavas bnei Billa sheregilan etzlosh nemar vuhu naras bnei Billa. They didn't say it to Yosef directly. They sent it through a messenger. They delegated certain they, they, uh, to certain of the brothers. You go tell Yosef that our father said while he was alive, Avicha Now, did that really happen? No. Isn't that a lie? Says Rashi, Shinu Yaakov So Rashi says, it never happened. Lo Yosef so what can you interpret from Rashi? Did Yaakov Avinu ever find out what the brothers did to Yosef? Did Yaakov ever find out? Text never tells us. The text never tells us. Did Yaakov ever find out? So from Rashi it sounds like yes. Lo Yosef be'enav. He knew, but Yaakov was never worried that, ya- that Yosef would take revenge. So he never told him not to. Rashi says... The brothers manufactured, they fabricated this conversation. Yaakov never instructed Yosef not to take revenge. Now I might have said, he never instructed him not to take revenge because he never knew what happened. But Rashi doesn't say that. Rashi says he never instructed him not to take revenge because he wasn't worried that Yosef would take revenge. Suggesting, did Yaakov know? Absolutely. Most, many other commentators say, Yaakov Avinu never found out which just adds to the greatness of Yosef. That Yosef emerged from all that he had experienced and suffered, and he never told his father. He played along, I was sold, I was kidnapped, I was this, I was that. He didn't want to diminish the brothers in their father's eyes. According to many, Yaakov never found out. Remarkable. Remarkable. Ki atachas elokimani. And so ya- Yosef tells the brothers, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. Am I, t- Shema, look at Rashi. Shema, bit me, Am I, 
הלא אתם כולכם חשבתם עליי רעה, כאשר ברוך הוא חשב לטובה, איך אני לבדי יכול להראות לכם. Even if I wanted to do harm to you, I couldn't. Because look, you tried to harm me, and you couldn't. It turned out well. So even if I wanted to harm you, I couldn't, because it's up to God. Does that sound like Yosef had forgiven them? Or that just Yosef realized that there would be no point in trying to cause them harm? There's a very mixed message is what I'm getting at at the end of the Parsha. The curtain comes down on the book of Bereshis. And we like to think that it comes down with a story, the music plays, Yosef cries, they hug, they hug it out, kumbaya, everyone's happy, it's a beautiful thing, unity. But that's not at all clear. That's not at all clear what's happening at the end of this conversation. They suspect Yosef. Yosef cries. Why does Yosef cry? Because he realizes, they think I'm no different than Esav. They're worried about me. They're worried that I would take revenge against them. He had thought that they were reconciled, they were unified. He had hoped beyond anything that the brothers would embrace him and accept him and be together as one. But once again, it's the brothers against Yosef. They're suspicious of him. He's defensive. And he realizes, I'm still not one of them. They think I'm more like Esav. Violent and vengeful. Terrible. So he suffers. I spoke about this on uh, Yom Kippur this year. But you recall in the story of the Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs, the great rabbis, the time of the, of the Romans, the second temple, who tragically and gruesomely gave their lives during the period of the Mishnah and beyond. And we read their story on Yom Kippur, and we read their story on Tisha B'Av, and the Medrash tells us that these ten rabbis received capital punishments. Why? As representatives of the Jewish people who remain perpetually and perpetually found guilty for the sale of Yosef. It tells the story of the Roman Caesar who's reading the Torah. He sees about the brothers sell Yosef. He feels they're never held accountable. So he's going to hold accountable these ten great rabbis who he kills. If you recall, we mentioned a couple weeks ago that... Uh, the What do you mean ten? There weren't ten brothers who sold Yosef. There were nine. Reuven wasn't with them. Who was the tenth? Yosef, we spoke about. But the Sarah Haruge Malchus corresponds with the ten. So here's the question. If the story ends as happily and blissfully as we said, the curtain comes down, the music plays, everyone's hugging, full reconciliation. If true reconciliation and resolution are experienced... Why the accountability of these rabbis all the years later? So Rabbeinu Bachya, the great 13th century Spanish commentator, Rabbeinu Bachya makes a remarkable comment. He tells us that the truth is, Yosef never forgave his brothers. Yosef never truly forgave his brothers. Despite his magnanimous display of forgiveness and reconciliation, despite saying, you meant harm, but God did well, he continued to harbor resentment and hurt, and he never fully forgave them. He forgave them superficially, he forgave them on the surface, he made them believe they were forgiven, but he continued to be, says, it's not me, the great medieval Rabbeinu Bachya. So why was Yosef so stubborn and obstinate? Why was he unforgiving? Yosef was a very flexible person. He was forbearing and faithful. So why couldn't Yosef move on here? Why did he harbor this resentment? Rabbeinu Bachti explains that forgiveness is proportional to and the mirror opposite of the sincerity of the apology which offered. If the apology is a superficial recognition of guilt, a shallow expression of sorry, then the best that can be expected back is a superficial display of reconciliation. Because relationships are genuine. People are genuine. Accountability has to be genuine. The great majority of Mephorshim, I just explained, they say that Yaakov never found out what happened with Yosef. Yosef went to great lengths to protect his brothers. And so when the brothers come to him after the father dies and says, Dad told us you should forgive us and not retaliate. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? You went to such great lengths to protect your brothers, not to let your father ever found out what they did. And how do they reciprocate? They come with suspicion after the father's death and say, Dad told us X, Y, Z. Dad couldn't have told you that because Dad never knew what happened because I never told Dad. How much pain Yosef must have been in. He wasn't crying out of joy. He was crying out of agonizing pain. By lying about something their father never said, they revealed their fear, 
that now that their father was gone, Yosef would retaliate. And they told him, essentially, you're no different than Uncle Esav, who waited to take revenge against Yaakov until Yitzchak had died. So Yosef cried not from satisfaction or fulfillment or joy. He cried from the acute pain and the loneliness. Sefer Bracious ends with Yosef intensely feeling all alone. Never truly forgiving, continuing to harbor a resentment, never receiving the real apology that he deserved. That's how Rabbeinu Bachya interprets what's going on. So it's important to remember, and that's why Rabbeinu Bachya says, the story of the Asara Harugei Malchus happened because there was no real reconciliation. And it's a reminder to us to use our words carefully, to not superficially, I'm so sorry you feel this way, or acknowledge someone else's pain because you want it to go away, but to genuinely feel remorse, to genuinely be sorry, to genuinely work things out instead of trying to brush them under the carpet in a way that leaves people feeling alone. So there's a way to read the end of the book of Bracious, the curtain comes down, and it's a wonderful, happy story. But the more accurate way is that it's full of sadness. Nobody told me what time it is. I can't believe how late I went. Yeah, I'm so sorry.